Let me say a prayer for us and we'll just dive right in. Lord, thank you for this ability to come together and look at your scriptures and understand the encouragement, the message that you have for us. Father, we stand in a long line of believers who have treasured these words. Give us hearts to hear you. Give us ears and minds to understand. And I pray, Lord, you would bless our conversation and our study. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, as you probably know, I tell you this every week, but just in case you're new, if you'll text questions to that number during class, we'll try to answer uh, as many as we reasonably can. It's always good to know where, uh, you know, what you're thinking and what's going on. Let me reframe where we are. Book of Revelation, uh, just for our purposes, we're going to divide it this way, because the goal of this is not just to give you a way to look at Revelation, it's to equip you to read it ourselves and understand it, not be intimidated by it. First three chapters, Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia. Remember, when we say Asia, we're talking about the Roman province of Asia. It's modern-day Turkey. Then chapters 4 through 19 are God's judgment on unbelievers, and we'll talk more about that in this lesson, but it's also known as the tribulation or part of it is the Great Tribulation. So chapters 4 through 19, God's judgment. Chapters 4 through 19 are organized around three sets of seven events or seven judgments. You have seven seals, which we just finished opening last week. You have seven trumpets, which we will hear blowing in this lesson. And then we will have seven bowls of wrath. And so these three sets of seven judgments are really what chapters 4 through 19 are built around. Chapter 20 is about the thousand-year reign, and that's just a change in focus. Chapters 21 and 22, new heaven and new earth. So hopefully that's an easy way to see the structure of the book of Revelation. For chapters 4 through 19, Christians have basically understood it. There are all kinds of nuances, but big picture have understood it in four major approaches to chapter 4 through 19. And it simply comes down to this. When did or when will the events in chapters 4 through 19 happen? Well, how you answer that question really depends a little bit on how you approach the book. So a preterist view basically says all the visions and events in chapters 4 through 19 have already happened. They either happened at the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or they referred to the early Roman Empire and perhaps even as late as the fall of the Roman Empire. But in other words, they're in the past. Historicist view says, hey, wait a minute. Chapters 4 through 19 are a bunch of visions and events, and you know what? I think it's kind of a coded map, kind of a coded road map between the first coming of Christ and the future second coming of Christ. And so we're in that period right now. And we'll talk about, as we go through it, what the historicists think these various events refer to in history. Futurist, easy to remember, says, no, wait a minute, chapters four through 19, none of that's happened yet. It's all gonna happen in the future, and it's usually understood to happen in a seven-year period in the future. And then finally, the symbolic or idealist view basically says, wrong question. 
This is not about when will these things happen. They've probably happened many times. They basically tell you recurring truths that have happened over and over. And I'll kind of point some of those things out as we go through. So the reason for this is to give you a framework as we walk through it to understand how have Christians approached this. The similarities are great in these views. I mean, they're going to disagree about the details, but some of the key ideas are very much aligned between all of these views. So we'll look at that as well as we go through it. So chapter 8, what has happened is we've had basically six of the seals have been opened. And we noticed that after the sixth seal, there was kind of a little interlude. And so we pick up with the seventh seal. And let's go to chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Well, that's a little anticlimactic. I mean, think about that. The seventh seal gets open and silence. If you remember what's happened in the other seals, we've had the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've had war and famine and death and disease and it's cataclysmic things are happening on the earth. And so to have silence for 30 minutes is an effect to heighten our anticipation of, uh-oh, what's coming. It's sort of like being, you know, the tornado comes through or the hurricane comes through and it beats you around and then you're in the eye and you go, uh-oh, I'm going to get the back end of this thing. But for right now, it's a moment of calm. And that's kind of what happens with the seventh trumpet and then we begin, or the seventh seal, then we begin to see this. And I saw, this is John seeing this vision, the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And so as the seventh seal is opened, we roll right into another set of seven judgments. Here, you see these seven angels who stand before God. And these, they're interesting, so I thought we'd take a mild detour here and talk about who these are. These are traditionally thought to be the archangels, the ruling angels, kind of the generals, if you will, of the angels. You're going to see them in Scripture just a little bit. Uh, in uh, Luke 1.19, this is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. So this is the Annunciation. This is Gabriel saying, you are going to bear the Messiah. And so Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. An apocryphal book named Tobit, if you're Catholic, you probably say, that's not apocryphal, that's in my Bible. It says, I am Raphael, it's an interesting story, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. So I wanted you to see that you see references to these seven archangels. Then one other source, this source is uh, completely apocryphal, it's called First Enoch, it's written in between the Old and New Testaments, but in First Enoch, they talk a lot about angels. But there, uh, this is purely according to tradition. This is not an inspired work. They list the seven archangels, and you get uh, Raphael, whom we saw, you get Michael, whom we know, you get Gabriel, but Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Sariel, Remiel, and Gabriel. And so there, they put names to the seven archangels before God. So whether or not those are their names, you see this idea of these archangels, these angels that stand in the presence of God. And it's to these angels they're given the trumpets. And so 
Then you see another angel. This is going to tie into something we've seen. Who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. Back in chapter 6, we basically saw this idea of the prayers of the saints, meaning the prayers of Christians kind of come up to God as a sweet smell. In other words, that communication is symbolically characterized as something very pleasing to God. And so this angel comes and he takes the incense and the prayers of the saints and it goes up to God. If you remember back in chapter 6, I'm going to read this to you. For those of you taking notes, it's chapter 6, oh, about verse 10, I think. Yes. So, when they opened up the fifth seal, he saw, John saw under the altar, the souls of all those who'd been slain for the word of God. In other words, those are Christians who've been killed for their faith. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge the earth and avenge our blood? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the time was right. The time is right. So here we are. And so this angel offers up the prayers of the saints. And it says, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, the coals, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In Revelation, whenever you see thunder, an earthquake and lightning, it is a precursor to the judgment of God. I should have pointed that out before because we've seen some thunder. But whenever you see that, this is the precursor like, okay, God is about to judge the earth. So you have the prayers of the saints coming up, and now God says it's time for justice to happen. And so you see the coals being thrown down onto the earth. It's a very symbolic way of saying God is now ready to punish those. He's ready to do justice to all those who have murdered the innocent, those who have martyred the saints. So that's what's happening. And so you see the precursor to this. You now know, reading this, like, hey, I don't think these seven trumpets are going to be an invitation to a party. You know, I think we're talking trumpets as in announcing God's judgment. And that's exactly what they are. Now, the trumpets are going to be very much like the same pattern. If you remember, they had four seals that were open quickly, and they had cataclysmic effects on the earth. And then you had two more, and they had to do with more spiritual kinds of judgments and things. And then there was an interlude, and then we just saw the seventh seal after the little interlude. The trumpets are the same way. The first four are going to affect the earth. They're going to be judgments on creation and on the unbelieving people in creation. Then you're going to see two more trumpets. Then we're going to stop at the interlude. The interlude is very interesting here before the seventh trumpet. So I want you to see there's also a lot of literary and structural parallelism in this. In other words, it's really organized in a way that we can understand it. It's structured. It's regular. And so as we get into this, I'll give you just a real precursor of what each of the views thinks is going on here, and then we'll just move right through each one of those. I'd like you to see how the historicists see this, how the futurists see it, and then symbolic. I'm just, for the interest of time and the fact that the preterists think all this stuff already happened, I'm going to kind of leave them out a little bit for now. Question before we jump into the seven trumpets. Yes, a couple of questions about angels. Angels, that usually gets some questions. Were they created before or after humans? 
Were angels created before or after humans? Well, first of all, they are created beings. So they're created by God as well. It appears from several places in the Bible, it appears that they were created before humans. Uh, it's hard to be dogmatic about that, but just as you read through it, you'll just read a lot of references. It appears that they were created before human beings. Are they still being created or are the same ones still around that we started with? <laughs> well, you mean like via immigration or <laughs> more organically than that? Uh, that's a good question. Are the same ones still around or are they still being created? Well, Jesus makes, again, you have to be a little bit careful about being very dogmatic about this because the scripture doesn't say a lot, but Jesus makes an interesting reference in the Gospels when he says, you don't understand the way heaven works. He's being asked about marriage and who's going to be married to whom. And it was a dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But basically, he gets asked about marriage. He said, you don't understand in heaven you'll be like the angels, you know, and you won't be married. You won't be uh, made in that way, that that's a different thing. So that oblique reference to the angels kind of makes it sound like you don't have you know kind of boy girl angels and little angel families and that kind of thing so if I had to guess I'd say it seems most likely to me you have the same old bunch so are they eternal do they are they eternal are beings? angels eternal we have no uh, indication that angels are mortal in other words, that, oh, well, so-and-so was dying off because he fought in a battle and he was killed. I mean, that may be true, but we don't know that. The implication, it seems to me, and now I'm just giving you some opinions here, is I, it seems that they are indeed spiritual beings and they appear to be eternal from everything that you can read. There's no reference to their mortality. That's a good question. But it's a little speculative, and I want to tell you when I'm speculating. But it seems to me that angels are spiritual beings. They are eternal. Uh, but they're not all good. And so we're going to find out more about that as we go on. So jump into the uh, trumpets. So the seven angels who had the trumpets prepared to sound them. And I'm going to do them two at a time here. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Do you remember, anybody remember how much of the earth was affected by the seals being opened? A fourth. And now a third. What's the significance to that? Because I know somebody's going to ask. It's getting worse. Right? In other words, it's not full and complete judgment at this point, but it's getting more widespread and it's getting worse. When it talks about people dying, you have a fourth of the people die, a third of the people die. We'll see that. They're going to die here in a few minutes. And so if you take a fourth and you take a third of what's left, you have, math majors, a half. Yeah, you have a half. So basically... I want you to understand, especially from like a futurist point of view, who sees this happening in seven years and who sees a big war going on. We'll get into that here in just a second. Three and a half billion people are dead. I mean, this is a cataclysmic event. So in other words, futurists understand this is happening very quickly, happening because of massive wars and or uh, 
natural kind of disasters that are happening, but this is like the end of the world, literally. I mean, so you've got three billion people being affected. So the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all on fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So what's going on here uh, with these two, uh, these two things? You've got a lot of fire, you've got a lot of blood, you've got a third of everything being affected. So historicist view, remember, this is kind of a road map of history. The historicist view sees these trumpets as happening between, uh, as the Roman Empire is being attacked by all the various forces. They see this time period of the seven trumpets as being from about 400 AD, when, for example, in the first trumpet, they think that's the Goths attacking the Roman Empire in 408 AD. And they're going to see the last of the trumpets happening in 1453 AD, which is the final fall of the Eastern Roman Empire. And I'll talk to you about that in a minute. But this first trumpet, the Goths. The second trumpet, they see those symbols as representing the Vandals attacking in 468 AD. Okay? So they see these waves of attackers, and they're saying these visions are basically telling you what is happening as God judges the world over the entire period of church history. Uh, futurists understand this as basically either, the futurists here kind of split a little bit. Some of them want to see these things as man-made or natural events. So if you remember in the seals, Futurists thought that what was happening was a war broke out. Russia and its Arab allies began a nuclear, began a war against Israel, which became nuclear. And so they're going to understand these visions as representing this is a spreading nuclear war. As more and more nations get involved and more and more nukes fire off, this is what you see. Third of the people are dying from either death in the war or famine or disease or radiation sickness. They understand that in that seven-year period, there's going to be a nuclear war on the earth. Or other futurists say, no, this is going to literally be God's supernatural judgment. So they don't disagree about when it's happening. They disagree about, is this symbolic of a nuclear war? Or is God literally going to throw a mountain onto the sea? Right? In other words, will just man, you know, this supernatural things be happening? But they both agree about everything, every aspect of it. They just disagree a little bit about, well, is this symbolic of war or is this symbolic of God doing that? Symbolic point of view is going to see basically kingdoms falling here. Uh, the sea is a symbol of political power, political entities. And you're going to see that very consistently run through it. So when you see this great mountain going into the sea and the sea turning to blood, Symbolic view is going to say that's talking about a political entity. So in other words, the political entities opposed to God are beginning to be destroyed. They're beginning to be torn down, like the Roman Empire was an empire opposed to anything God stood for, and the Roman Empire over time crumbled. And so symbolic view will say this is representative of every government that stands against God. It, in the end, is judged and it crumbles. So does that help a little bit? Historicists, these are specific events, happen to be in the Roman Empire era right now. Futurists, 
This is a nuclear war in the future. Israel's in the center of it, but everybody else is being pulled into this worldwide war. So that's what they think the first two trumpets are. The next two, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. So what you have happening here is just increasingly big things happening. You get all the waters being turned bitter. Wormwood is, uh, means bitter, and it's basically uh, an herb that's, that has a bitterness to it. And if you drink it over a long period of time, it can be very harmful to you, it could kill you. But the idea here is, is you get the name bitterness. In other words, all the waters kind of get poisoned. And so it represents a little bit a kind of a picking up of the Exodus motif. So let me jump out of this for a second, because those of you that have studied Exodus and the Jews leaving Egypt and the plagues that God used to judge the gods of Egypt and he brought on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh who stood against God, that Exodus story has plagues that sound just like this. The waters turn bitter, waters turn to blood, you have hail, you have fire falling. In other words, you go, wait a minute, these sound like the plagues in Exodus. And there's a reason for that. The Exodus story is basically called the Exodus motif. And what you have, God's people being oppressed by an evil government, uh, a government opposed to God. God in time comes and says, I'm going to pass judgment on you who've oppressed my people, you who do not believe in me, you who are opposed to me. Remember Pharaoh's words when Charlton Heston goes to him and says, God says, let my people go. He says, I do not know your God and I will not let these people go. Pharaoh was a God. And so God begins to judge them. He begins to send one plague after another on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he just won't give in to God. He's opposed to God. Eventually, you know that they're successful and the Israelites leave and they go to the promised land. That's a historical event. And now what you're seeing in Revelation is you're seeing the Exodus played out on a cosmic scale. So as the trumpets sound, you see these plagues reminiscent of Exodus. Why are they reminiscent? They want you to think about, oh, I see what's happening here. Just like God judged Pharaoh, and brought his people out and took them to the promised land. Now, whether you think it's historically or you think it's in the future, both would agree what's happening here. God is bringing his judgments on all those evil powers in the world and he will bring his people out of this world into the promised land. Think heaven now, think cosmic, eternal uh, promised land. So you see these echoes of the Exodus and that's the motif, that's kind of the storyline that God is saying. That's, in my view, why Israel went through all that, was so God could then help us to understand what his ultimate plan is. It's never only been about the Jews. 
Yes, of course, that's God's chosen people. They had a role to play, but it was always forecasting what Jesus Christ was going to do for all believers, for the entire world. So you, you do see, uh, you see the sun going dark in Exodus. I mean, all these things are very reminiscent of Exodus. So what's happening here You've, on these two? Let's talk about that for a minute. I think I have a couple of pictures here. First that you see in that uh, third trumpet is a star is usually a symbol for a prince. A star is usually a symbol for a prince and sometimes the kingdom that the prince rules. And so when you see this kind of star uh, falling, you tend to think of a, a, a nation or a leader. So for example, that third trumpet, the historicists think that's Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun brought 800,000 troops into attacking the Roman Empire. According to historical sources, may or may not be entirely accurate, but they say there were 300,000 people died in that attack. And the historical sources say there were so many dead bodies that it fouled the streams and the lakes and the waters. And so historicists would say wormwood, bitterness, the water's not good to drink. This is referring to that event with the Roman Empire. Futurists would say, no, this is still that nuclear war, and nuclear fallout has poisoned the waters. I mean, it just gets worse and worse. You know, the nuclear war is worse. For example, when it talked about the sun being blocked out and you couldn't see it very well, and you get this idea the moon can't see the lights or the stars, that's that nuclear ash that's going to cause all of the vegetation eventually to die. You have a nuclear winter kind of a thing happening here. So futurists are gonna understand this, again, either as God supernaturally doing something, but more of them tend to think we are just playing out this war, that the enemies of God's people, Russia, their Arab allies, the Chinese will get into this here in a minute, are attacking Israel, it's become nuclear, and the whole world is destroying itself, if you will. And God is basically letting the evil forces in the world destroy themselves, and in the middle of it, He's bringing his people through this event. Let's talk just a little bit about uh, this map because I want you to kind of get a feeling for how the historicists understand what's happening next with these next two trumpets. First of all, I want you to, we, we kind of went through this quickly, but as you read back through it, and I'd urge you to read back through these chapters, notice that in the first four trumpets, each one of them affects three things. And so you go, man, you cannot get away from fours and threes and sevens and twelves, but you have the first four trumpets each affect three things, destroying a third of what's happening on the earth. So there's this symmetry, there's this symbolism to it. Why four? Four is the number for creation. Why three? Three is a divine number. This is God's judgment on the rebellious creation, on the rebellious army. So whether or not you agree or understand, well, who's exactly the mountain and who's exactly the star? And is that a prince or is it something else? You get this general obvious idea that everybody agrees with. This is clearly talking about God judging and doing justice on the earth. So it's a, it's a message of judgment. The next two, this is kind of interesting, the way uh, historicists understand this, is uh, what you're going to see 
is this is the Roman Empire. And so you have the Western Roman Empire on that side, Eastern on the right side. Western Roman Empire falls in 476 AD. And so basically uh, the fourth trumpet is basically where they understand the fall of the Western Roman Empire. But the Eastern Roman Empire continues to be a viable political entity. It comes to be called the Byzantine Empire. And instead of being headquartered in Rome, it's headquartered up here in Constantinople. And so what is going to happen historically after this time period is you're going to see the rise of Islam. Think uh, basically, let's call it about, oh, from till about 763. So think around 612 to 763, okay? Uh, you get the rise of Islam. And so what you're going to see is you're going to see Muslims coming out of Saudi Arabia, and these Muslims are called Saracens. Saracens are Arab Muslims, and they literally come boiling out of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and they begin to attack the Eastern Roman Empire. This thing is in total confusion. There's all kinds of people ruling over here. It's kind of every man for himself. But this is still a kingdom, and the Muslims begin to attack first group to do this are the Saracens. And so they're attacking here. They actually capture the Holy Land. And that's when the Crusades happen. Think roughly 1100 AD. So after they've captured some of that area, then you begin to see some of the Christians coming over and fighting to try to take it back. The historicists are going to understand this fifth and sixth trumpet as referring to this time period. A little later, you're going to see pressure here from Muslims, and they're going to be called Ottomans. Those are Turkish Muslims. They're later in time, and they are eventually going to conquer Constantinople. So the fifth and sixth trumpets, from a historicist point of view, are all these trumpets are mapping the fall of the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, then the Eastern Roman Empire. Futurists, stuck in the future. It's like, Forget this history. This stuff is going to happen in a seven-year period in the future. But just to kind of cue this up a little bit, one thing, this is off the subject, but this is really interesting. I don't know if you've thought about this or not. What are God's people doing during this time period? Now, I know the futurists are saying they're kicking back in heaven watching Netflix reruns because they're gone. They've been raptured, right? So, But if you don't think they've been raptured or... Some of these people, even if you think there's a rapture before these events start to happen, back in chapter 4, there's still people who become believers during this time period. So what are they doing? Very interesting thing. What God asks his people to do is not, I want you to go fight the forces of evil, and I want you to overcome them. They overcome by being faithful even through persecution. So if there's a holy war going on in Revelation, and there most certainly is a holy war, meaning God has declared war on the forces of evil in the world, Christians participate in the holy war by being faithful even when they're being persecuted. I want to contrast this just a little bit with Islam, and I don't mean this in a way uh, to just try to disparage Islam. I want you to see a really interesting difference. What is holy war 
look like in Islam? Well, it historically looks like violent, militaristic jihad. In other words, Islam expanded through a holy war, which meant get a big army and go conquer. And they did a very successful job of that. The idea of holy war for Christians is persevering in your faith. And I just wanted to point out that here in Revelation, you see that. You don't see a jihad. You don't see a big old army of Christians out there trying to kill all the bad guys. Make sense? That's one of the things that makes Christianity so very unique. And it's one of the things that sets Christianity and Islam so far apart. Well, let's look at these next uh, couple of things. Fifth angel sounded his trumpet. Remember the historicists? This is going to be Islam coming against uh, the Eastern Roman Empire. And I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. That does not sound good. When he opened the abyss, sort of like going into the very back part of my garage. It's like you don't want to know what's there, right? When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. Remember locusts from Exodus plague? Locusts came out upon the earth, and they were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or any plant, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, after the sixth seal was opened, God said, stop everything. And he goes and he puts his seal on the forehead of all the believers. He marks them. We talked about that. Now, he says, if you don't have the mark of God, then they, these locusts, these demons, are going to go punish you. This is part of God's judgment of unleashing this on the world. So he says, they were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, now this is, gives you an idea of whether you're a futurist, you think this is nuclear war, or a historicist describing the Muslim invasion of the Eastern Roman Empire. During those days, men will seek death but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. So you just see this horrific, you know, suffering that's going on in this thing. So the historicists think these are the Saracens. From 612 to 763, Muslims come out, the Arab Muslims out of Saudi Arabia, they think the star is Muhammad. And so you see this star, this prince, if you will, this ruler come to the earth, he opens up the abyss, and all of these Saracen warriors rode horses and they were fierce warriors and historicists say this is basically a symbolic description of that campaign. Futurists think one of two things about this. They either think these are demons who are then going to go torment people. Literally, this is Satan opening up the abyss where the angels have been bound, the ones that were cast out of heaven. More about that next time. And so they're let loose on the earth to basically torment people. And so it's either that or it's more warfare. So you see whether that's Muhammad, if you're a historicist, bringing the Muslim hordes, or if you think it's Satan, bringing the demons out of the abyss. Futurists who think it's not demons think this. Think about if you were John and you saw a vision of an attack helicopter. How might you describe an attack helicopter as best you could? Listen to this. This is how he describes them. 
He says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth kind of like lion's teeth. They had breastplates of iron on, and the noise of their wings was like, wow, loud, the noise of chariots and horses rushing into battle. They have tails, and they sting like a scorpion, and their power to hurt people is in their tails. They have a king over them and the angel of the bottomless pit and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon, the destroyer. And so some futurists think these are demons, others think this is a nuclear war. John is literally seeing and describing as best he can a nuclear war and all the appurtenances of war. So futurists see the war, historicists see us moving through history. Either way, they both agree this is part of God's judgment on evil. So let me pause there and see what questions we have. Well, sometimes you get a question over and over and over. This is one of those. Okay. What did the futurists think this meant before we knew about nuclear war? What did futurists think this meant before we knew about nuclear war? That is a very good question. Well, a lot of supernatural. I mean, well, think about it. The futurist view, these different views have been more popular at different times in history. In other words, right now, the futurist view is probably the most widely held view, opinion about this, in, at least in America, amongst American Christians. That hasn't always been the case. It's, there have been times when the historicist view was certainly the most widely held. Think the Reformation. You know, John Wesley, Martin Luther, and the Reformers, they, they took a historicist view. And that was most popular, certainly among Protestants at that time. Uh, preterist view has come and gone. Symbolic view is, has been held at different times. So back to your immediate question, the futurist view hasn't always been that popular. In modern times, futurists have seen it more as a man-made. This is like, hey, you know what? We actually have the ability to do these things to the earth ourselves. Before that, they would have typically seen this as God's supernatural activity. I mean, God literally is gonna have demons coming out and they're gonna, maybe they look like locusts or something, but these are symbolic of demons. So they would have seen it as more supernatural. Only in recent times have they said, hey, wait a minute, maybe there's another way to understand this. Same effect, I mean, it's not a disagreement in what's happening, it's just a disagreement in exactly what does it mean. So good question. How do um, other religions, specifically Islam, Hinduism, and Judaism, view the end of the world, and what is their um, opinion of a second coming? Uh, what do the different religions, specifically Judaism and Islam, think about the end of the world? We actually kind of did a whole series on that, and so I, I won't try to repeat that here, but I do believe it's online. And it basically talks about kind of the eschatology, the end times view. They are different, but complementary. Uh, leave the Jews out of this for a minute because they're not nearly as interestingly violent. And so you get revelation where you see God executing judgment. Islam sees a similar kind of eschatology, and again, it depends on the branch of Islam, but painting with a broad brush because I only have a couple of moments for this. Basically, they also see God judging the world, God overcoming evil, but they see it happening through 
you know, guns, weapons, Muslims in armies. They see it through violent jihad. Not every Muslim sees it that way, but that is a very integral part of Islamic eschatology, is that God is going to succeed in the world. They think that, Jesus, that God is going to judge everybody who's not a Muslim. Well, that does, makes perfect sense, right? They think Jesus is going to come back, but he's going to be a Muslim. And he's going to come back and he's going to say to all the Christians, you guys got it all wrong. I was a Muslim the whole time. And so he's going to come back with, uh, depending, there's variances here, but with uh, you know, the 12th imam, if you are a Shiite, this is a very prominent kind of a view. And Jesus are going to come back and they're going to strap it all on and they're going to go out and defeat all the non-Muslim forces and they're going to rule the world and God wins. So similar in some respects, but very different in some key foundational ideas. Did John understand his visions or explain them in any way? Did John understand these visions? I think it's likely that he did not fully understand them. And in all kinds of prophetic literature, certainly apocalyptic, it is very common that the prophet, think Daniel, Daniel has some visions, he said, it disturbed me. I knew judgment or bad things were ahead, but I didn't know what. And he said, it disturbed me. And I thought on these things for a long time. And I think prophets aren't always granted understanding how the prophecy plays out. I think he had the basic idea that we have. He goes, okay, God is going to do justice in the world. He's going to take care of his believers. He's going to punish evil. He is going to bring the believers through to heaven. I mean, I think he understood that sense, but I do not. It does, there's no evidence that John actually understood how and when this would play out. Seems like futurists are kind of fixated on Russia. Do we know why that is and what is their perspective on America's place in this? Yes, we, the question is, futurists are kind of fixated on Russia, only for the moment. Uh, we're gonna get some other players on their side here pretty soon, but yes, uh, and it kind of depends on the, just what branch of futurists you are, but yes, you basically see regimes that are opposed to God, like Babylon, like Rome, which are gonna be the two big prototypical regimes here. So you're gonna see all kinds of governments that are opposed to God. You're gonna see China jump in here in just a second. And so they do see this playing out with regimes that are opposed to God. The Russians play into this for some other reasons, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't really have time to go into the prophecies in Daniel just because this is a relatively short series of 10, 10 lessons. But there are some prophecies in Daniel that, make, that are interpreted in a way that bring Russia into this, uh, into this uh, prophecy. And so, but also I'd have to say, reading the newspapers today, if you just take a look at the bad guy lineup out there, when I say bad guys, I mean bad guys from our point of view, our political point of view at the moment. You've got the Iranians, think Persians. Historically, you've got the Russians, you've got the Chinese, you've got crazy guy in North Korea. You know, you kind of have a pretty good little group of players to pick from here. Futures tend to want to fit those folks into these prophecies. So, good question. So, one other thing I wanted to point out here, as soon as I can get this to move forward. The other view of this, I mean, remember I said that the prince, the star, would be Muhammad? But if you think that these are demons, you think that that star is Satan. And here's an interesting passage from Isaiah that is not necessarily referring to Satan, but has traditionally been understood. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, 
son of the dawn. And by the way, that's where the word Lucifer comes from. And in the Latin, behind this verse, it, you get the word Lucifer. Okay, so they think of it as the name of Satan. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So what do you see happening here? Traditionally, that's been understood as Lucifer or Satan was one of those archangel kind of guys, and he rebelled against God. His pride said, I want to be God, not you. And so you were thrown down. You were a prince among the angels, and you were thrown down to the earth into the bottomless pit. So what do you have in Revelation? You have a star coming down to the earth, and he's going to open up the abyss, the bottomless pit. And so there is a view that understands this as being, this is Satan, and he's unleashing these supernatural powers. So historicist, Muhammad, futurist, Satan, and a bunch of demons. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. So... What you see in the sixth trumpet, if you're a historicist, this is the Ottoman Turks. They take the 200 million as symbolic. They were an overwhelming army, and they captured Constantinople, and the Eastern Roman Empire was gone, 1453. So historicists say we're already up to 1453 with this sixth trumpet. The futurists are obviously not going to see it that way. They're either going to see it as more demons or an invasion from the east. And so think about the Chinese army, which you'll see a lot of futurist documents talk about the Chinese really do have a 200 million man army, that this is a very literal thing. And so what it's saying is, we've got Russia and the Arab allies already at war with Israel, drawing the rest of the world in. We have a nuclear war. And all of a sudden, here come 200 million Chinese troops to join the battle. And so we're pulling even more of the forces, quote, of evil, into this. Futurists would see China as an evil for a player in this, in this game. So futurists are going to see even more nations coming into this battle. Another view is either it's all China or the fact that there are four angels, they will, you'll see some of the futurists theorize about a four-nation coalition joins the war on the side of Russia and its Arab allies. And we're all heading to this massive, massive final battle called Armageddon, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. So, as you move through the trumpets, you see the same structure, you see God's judgment on the earth, you see the historicists tracing historical events, you see the futurists seeing this whole global catastrophe getting worse and worse as we go, getting more and more uh, significant as we go. So then, just when you get to the peak of this and you think, hey, we could have a really good battle. There's an interlude. Remember after the sixth seal, we had a pause and God sealed all of his people. After the sixth trumpet, you go, hey, we got a total cage match ready. We got a throwdown going here and we got three billion people killed. The earth is in bad shape and yet mankind is still fighting. And so you get a pause. 
You get a little interlude between the sixth and seventh. And look what happens. He makes a comment. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, magic arts, sexual immorality, or thefts. What's this saying? It said, even as bad as things got, people still would not turn to God. What does that sound like historically? Think Exodus. As bad as the plagues got, what did Pharaoh do? His heart was hardened, and he would not relent. He would not give in, no matter how bad. At one point, his advisors come to him and say, do you not understand our nation is ruined? And he still would not give in. And so what you see is this judgment on unbelieving humanity saying, no matter how bad this gets, they will not turn to God. And so it's God's commentary on just the evil nature of humanity. Then you see another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, legs were like fiery pillars. Stout dude. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion, and when he shouted, the voice of seven thunders spoke. So what's happening at this point is, think of the sea and the land. I told you that the sea represented political entities. The land represents spiritual entities. You're going to see this in particular in the next lesson. But basically, you have this angel showing God's sovereignty. He's representing God. He's got the rainbow above his head, which was above the throne of God. And he puts one foot on the sea and one on the land, meaning God is sovereign over political and military things, and he's sovereign over spiritual things as well. And so he's basically standing there, and he has a little scroll in his hand, and that little scroll is effectively going to be judgment. Let's see what happens with the scroll. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me and said, go and take that scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take this scroll and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about, count these, peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Four, the number of creation, you have more things to talk about. There is more judgment coming on creation and the unbelievers in the world. So what's up with the scroll? What do you get this image where you go eat a scroll, right? I mean, but that has happened before. It has been used as a symbolic thing uh, before historically. So let me show you this. We're going to go back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's prophesying 600 years before the time of Christ. So 700 years before this is written. Listen to this. Ezekiel said, then I looked. He's seeing an apocalyptic vision also. I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Three, right? God's judgment. This is God's judgment. Three is the divine number. Lament and mourning and woe. This is a judgment on Israel in this case. And he said to me, son of man, human being, Eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. In other words, you're going to take what's on this scroll. Eating it is like digesting it. You are going to go speak my judgment. 
to them. Ezekiel, by the way, was not a popular guy because he did not have a good message for them. He said, eat this scroll. I ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. Then the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. He eats the judgment of God, tastes sweet in his mouth, but it's really a bitter, bitter message. That's what's happening to John. So what do the historicists think is happening? Well, Constantinople just fell in 1453. This little scroll is the Reformation. This is the Bible being printed on the printing press and spread out to all the world so everybody can see the sweetness and the bitterness of the, of the Bible. The Bible is sweet, God's love for us, and it's bitter, God's judgment on evil. And so the historicists would see this as bringing us up to the Reformation. The symbolic view is going to say this is just a commentary on God's Word. God's Word is sweet in that it's the love of God, the sacrificial love of God for us, but it's also just. It is God will judge those who don't believe. I want you to think about it this way. This is a great way of saying this. What Jesus did on the cross, the gospel, the good news, God loved you, God sent his son to die so that we might have the hope if we repent and believe this good news, we can be reconciled to God. That's good news, that's the gospel. That is the best news you could possibly get if you believe. But I don't know if you've thought about this, that's the worst news you could possibly get if you don't believe. Does that make sense? The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news if you believe. It's the worst possible news if you do not. And that what this is saying is the message of the gospel is sweet, but it can also be bitter because with God's love comes God's justice and God's judgment. And so this is what's happening here. So, trumpets, let me try to frame this up a little bit. You're seeing the second set of increasingly severe judgments of God. People are going to argue about, is it war? Is it demons? Is it historical? But what every view is going to understand is the certainty of God's judgment. I'm going to argue that you cannot have a loving God who is not also just. You cannot solve the problem of evil with a fairy godmother God. And so what you see in Exodus is God who loved his people so much that he would bring them through those kinds of trials to the promised land, but who also would deal with evil and judge it. And that's exactly what you're seeing in Revelation. So I know what you're thinking, wow, and we're only about halfway through the tribulation? We're about four years into this thing? Oh my goodness, what else could happen? Well, I'm glad you asked, because next time, I'll tell you what happens. Satan shows up, and there's war in heaven. I want you to think about Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all bound into one, Death Star. Satan shows up, and God's now going to show us what's happening from a different perspective. So angels fighting angels next week. I'll see you then.